0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, to some candidates in the race to become the next leader of Canada's federal conservative party, freedom seems to be the word of choice. Are they trying to Trumpify the conservative government? Another troubling escalation in the invasion of Ukraine as the western city of Lviv, once considered to be something of a refuge, was hit by Russian missiles over the weekend. Freelance journalist Matthew Best is in Lviv. He joins us with all the details. And will Joe Biden travel to Ukraine? Reggie Chikini, Washington correspondent for Global News, joins us to discuss that and the latest in U.S. politics. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The leadership race for the federal conservative party continues. And uh, while conservative leadership candidate Pierre Polyev has been drawing crowds by the thousands, one of his rivals is taking a rather different approach to the campaign. Rob Westgate has details.
1: Patrick Brown, the Mayor of the Greater Toronto Area City of Brampton has been crisscrossing the
0: country making his case to the leaders of Muslim, Tamil and Nepalese communities to sell memberships as a way to have a better stake in the party. Some of what Brown is promising is shown in videos and clips from some of those meetings, which have been shared on Facebook by those in attendance. In one meeting with Muslim leaders in British Columbia, Brown says his path to victory isn't by winning over the current membership base, which he says favors Poiliev because they have a hard right bend. Instead, he says what he needs to do is to sell thousands of new memberships. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press daunting task to be sure uh to uh, give us some perspective on this so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, dr laurie turnbull director of the school of public administration with dalhousie university uh Lori, great to have you back in the program i trust you had a great easter weekend i did
2: i did i hope you did too
0: uh yeah aside from the snow yesterday but uh, you know, know. it's uh, april so you expect snow just about anytime <laughs> anywhere this is canada hey eh? <laughs> Uh, and the uh, the leadership race is uh, taking a couple of different twists and turns. Uh, as uh, was pointed out in an article in the Toronto Star, uh, uh, the word freedom seems to be a common phrase with just about all of the leadership candidates. Apparently, we've been uh, oppressed for the last uh, number of decades, I guess. You uh, can argue whether or not this is done in the proper context, but it seems to be one of the themes, especially Pierre Polyev anyway.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think he's doing a few things here. Like, obviously... Um, freedom was a theme for the trucker convoy. And I think he's trying to harness to some extent the feelings that that we know people have around frustration with vaccine mandates, frustration with masking, um, any kind of restriction or rule attached to the COVID-19 period. I think he's trying to kind of harness again, like some, some of that energy and frustration. It's interesting too, that some of the things in saying in these rallies, like, you know, bringing an end to mask mandates, bringing an end to vaccine mandates. Well, we, we're kind of there in some cases, you know, depending on where you are in the country and you know what rules might be applying to you at that particular moment. But I mean, he's almost, it's almost like he's arguing for things we've already got, but he's trying to, you know, whip up that energy in the process. And then also the word freedom, of course, just from an ideological perspective, has always had a lot of uh, resonance with people on this conservative side of the spectrum. And so it's a kind of like it's a word that doesn't necessarily mean any specific thing, but it's something that can feel good to a lot of people, even if they disagree on things. So it's a good political tool.
0: Well, and you're right, it's been a common theme in the Conservative Party for generations, really, Uh, because let's face it, ideologically, even though they seem to have taken a a hard right here over the last number of years, Conservatives, by nature, I guess, believe in less government, Uh, you know, less government interference. uh, And I I guess if you're off, you're doing pretty well by yourself, you know, you got a good job, good pension, and and, and everything seems to be hunky-dory, you're okay with that. Uh, But there's a lot of us not in that position right now, so it's going to be interesting to see just how... How much resonance there is in that in, in that phrase when when people actually start looking at their own situation, but you're you're right. I mean, it's it's just basically tapping into the anger and frustration I guess a lot of us are feeling these days.
2: That's it, and I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, and I find now some of the conservative candidates uh, and we're kind of seeing them all take and ter- take a turn in front of the media as we finalize the ballot in the coming week or so. But they're being asked direct questions like, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by freedom? What do you mean by less government? And if less government means fewer programs, what would you cut? Are you going to keep the child care program or no? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think questions like that, like it's when you start to parse the word freedom and what does it really mean? It's interesting, too, to see someone like Pierre Polyev against the bank of canada and like for somebody who wants to be prime minister and is running to be prime minister and in the next sentence he says you know but we we can do better than our national currency and we need to be thinking differently about cash it's like wow really so you're really kind of getting to the point that you're you're really trying to uh, like tap into these attitudes that are not trusting of government are feeling like we should be thinking differently about government and it's going to be interesting i think too to see When this is all over, whoever wins it, how they're going to bring these various types of conservatives together. Because someone like Jean Charest is a completely different guy. He identifies as conservative too, but he absolutely believes that there is a role for government in your life that is a much different thing than what Pierre Paulyov believes
0: well, and it's going to be interesting to see even on a national basis how this is being perceived. And and I know that the Polyev camp just hates it when people draw comparisons between Donald Trump's initial campaign uh, and what Mr. Polyev is saying these days. But there are some commonalities there, uh, including basically attacking institutions. I mean, Trump basically said the whole system is corrupt. Uh, you know, the swamp going to drain the swamp, yada, yada. We know all the, that rhetoric. But uh, Poly- is, is basically the same thing. Uh, Parliament has sc- screwed you around. The Bank of Canada is screwing you around. You know, we have to change all these institutions, which is pretty radical talk. It is. It is. And
2: I mean, it, it remains to be seen whether that's going to, you know, get him to the leadership victory and whether, if it did, whether that would be something that's sold across the country. And I mean, you were naming institutions, and you're absolutely right, another one is the CDC. You know, he's he's really, that's not the same as the Bank of Canada, obviously, but like he's he's still kind of taking a run at how the country works institutionally. And I and I agree with you. I think it is Trump-esque in how he's delivering these messages. It's not necessarily gonna be the same guy or covered in the same way, and of course our institutions are very different, and he's not gonna be able to change them all, even if he wanted to. But a lot of times we hear politicians uh, when they're trying to get power, they're they're trying to kind of identify with you and your frustrations. But then once you know they get to the position of leadership, and if they get to the position of prime minister, the world is very different for them, and they have to change that message because they realize that it's actually not going to work for them in terms of governance. And so that will be interesting to see whether the other candidates are able to push Polyev on that. Right. Like, is he going to have to be a bit more accountable for the things he's saying? Because right now he's walking into packed rooms and everybody's cheering. And, you know, it it doesn't seem to me like he's really having to really explain the second and third layers of how this is all going to work.
0: Well, there's an old phrase, of course, and and as you've been watching politics for a long, long time and studying politics and politicians as I have. But the the, the phrase that resonates here uh, is that campaigning is easy. Governing is hard. Uh, because then you've, you've got to, it's a commitment. You can promise the sun, the moon, and the stars when you're campaigning. Uh, and, but once you get elected, trying to get some of that stuff done, uh, can be a lot more difficult. And I, I know polyev has been around long enough to understand that too, but that's certainly not going to be the theme of his campaign. It's basically, we can change everything as long as you, you vote me to be, well, He's as he mentioned the, again on the weekend, he's running for prime minister, not for leadership of the Conservative Party. So he's sort of trying to skip a step here. But I mean, that just kind of shows you where his, his goal is right now and where his target is.
2: And in in doing that, I find that really interesting. And, you know, again, coming back to this theme of Polyev's uh, campaign against institutions, it seems to me that he's also trying to avoid the kind of getting too bogged down into the discourse on political parties. He doesn't even really want to talk about what's going on in the Conservative Party. He wants to, as you say, skip a step and talk about being prime minister and so he's trying to run against um you know run against Justin Trudeau in a way which I think is pretty smart on his part right because sure, he's trying yeah. to again get into this like we hate Justin Trudeau kind of thing a lot of that trucker convoy was you know hate Trudeau f Trudeau all this and so it's a thing for him to kind of say okay I'm going to take I'm going to take a piece of that campaign I'm going to identify with that and then in turning it into his the thrust of his leadership campaign he's able to jump over some of the messiness around, what does it mean to be conservative? He's like, screw that, I'm not even gonna get into that. Let's just talk about beating Justin Trudeau. So I think it's smart, if it works, we'll see.
0: What about uh, the other guy that we just talked about here, Rob Warsgate's report, just before you joined us? Uh, Patrick Brown, you you mentioned Charest, and and it it seemed like it was going to be a two-person race between Charest and Polyev uh, for the longest time. Uh, Patrick Brown is seen as a dark horse. Uh, He's a guy that people wrote off, you know, when he tried to to run as, as a member of parliament, and then, of course, as conservative leader on the provincial level, but he won they wrote him off after the scandal that made him step down that, well, there's no way he's going to get elected public office again. He's the mayor of Brampton, uh, a pretty large community here in Southern Ontario. Do they dismiss him at their own peril? I think so.
2: I absolutely think so. And we're seeing him run a very different campaign, obviously, as compared to Pierre Polyev. Whereas Polyev is going into, again, packed halls, uh, people are showing up, whether they're all going to sign membership, sign up memberships and vote for him is a whole other story. But he has a sense of public momentum. He's getting a lot of attention. Whereas P- Patrick Brown is basically doing this silently, right? Like he's going around meeting with people, building their trust, trying to get memberships signed up and trying to, as he says, grow the party to the point where he's able to have enough of its members to be able to win the leadership. So it's a completely different style of campaigning than Polly. I think he's probably smart, not to try to beat Polyev at at his game because Polyev has far more name recognition outside of Ontario and Patrick Brown does have these scandals in his background right and he has these things that are if he decides to really try to make a big public campaign uh, during the leadership contest I think that's a risk for him in the sense that he's going to get more of those questions being thrown at him by the mainstream media if he goes hall to hall he does it quiet it's easier for him to try to build support and build trust, but we'll see whether it's enough. He's this is a daunting task he has ahead of him to try to set, you know, sign up enough members to essentially change the DNA of the party in some ways. But I think that he's what is interesting too is the the way the the votes are counted. Every riding is you know I don't think they're right, they're weighting them all equally anymore exactly as they did, but essentially it's not like it's one person one vote and it's all added up at the end of the day. It's a weighted writing system, and so. That could affect, too, how the
0: outcome turns out. Well, as, as we've talked about in the past, and, you know, we, we have to remind our listeners, uh, choosing their leader is going to be done on what they call a ranked balloting system. And, you know, it does. You know, let's assume, for instance, nobody's going to win on the first ballot. That's a, that doesn't happen that often in a system like that. But it, if it goes to a second, third, or fourth ballot, don't forget, you know, you know when Andrew Shear won, it was 17 ballots before they finally decided on a winner. Does it, does Polyev have enough second-choice support? Uh, you know, people to drop off because they don't meet the uh, the standard. You know, will their supporters gravitate to Paulie ever? They're going to look for somebody else—a uh, uh, Patrick Brown, uh, a Sheree, a uh, Leslin Lewis. I mean, there's a, there's a pretty long list there.
2: Well, that's the thing. Like, it, it's not enough to come first on the first ballot because, as you say, I think there are too many candidates in this race and there are too many things going on for anybody to be able to slam dunk this thing on the first ballot and people before him, you know, including Peter McKay, most recently learned that, right? Like even when you're the front runner, even when you've got a lot of momentum behind you and it looks like you're the candidate to watch, you can sit there and watch somebody else win at the end of the night because you weren't enough people's second choice. And so for well, that Paulier, with Maxine I think,
0: Bernier, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. 17 and ballots so, and he was, he was winning on the first 16.
2: Oh yeah. And he, he was the most shocked guy in the room when it went to Andrew year and so that kind of thing, like, it's important, right? Like, it's as much as we can see Pierre Polyev building momentum in cities across the country and communities across the country, what matters is what happens on the ballot. And so he's going to have to find a way to become somebody's you know, second choice, right? So that's where some of the candidates like, um, you know, again, no offense, uh, somebody like Leon Alislev, who has, you know, less of a chance of winning, I think, makes sense for Pierre Polyev to start to court some of those candidates who are most likely to drop off first because those will be the ones that are those those are the ballots that will be transferred according to second preference so if he's you know if he's a a whole bunch of people second choice for people that put Patrick Brown first that might not help him because Patrick Brown won't be dropped off until late if he is
0: does it matter that that some sitting MPs a number of them have already uh, endorsed Polyev? Does, does that really count once people start voting
2: you know, like, I don't know that it really does. I mean, in some ways, it's it's a nice shot in the arm at the moment. And it gives him a sense of, okay, I'm going to be able to hold a caucus together to a certain extent once, it, you know, if he was to be chosen the leader once this whole thing is over. But when people vote, I mean, I don't know necessarily that the caucus endorsement really matters a whole lot to people. And we don't do the, the delegated... Conventions anymore, like it's different. If if someone like just because this is on the top of my head, Michelle Rempel Garner is supporting Patrick Brown. If she was on the floor of a delegated convention, right, like talking to people, working the room, why don't you come over to our campaign when your guys dropped off? That kind of endorsement can make a huge difference and can be the you know a deciding factor. But when everybody's voting from their living room and whether you know by mail or or however however the case is, it doesn't have the same effect in the moment. And so never a bad thing for a caucus member to endorse you i guess but it doesn't have the same you know weight as it used to i think
0: it's going to be fascinating to watch as this unfolds over the next uh, few months especially uh, laurie always a pleasure uh thanks so much for this we'll talk again next week
2: sounds like a plan bill take care
0: you betcha dr laurie turnbull uh from uh, dalhousie university watching uh, the political scene here and it is uh, uh well a work in progress i guess for the uh, conservatives as they try to pick a new leader uh by the fall <laughs> You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Troubling news, of course, out of Ukraine over the weekend. Russian forces have been pounding a multitude of targets across Ukraine, including Lviv, all the way to the country's west. Ben Thomas has details. Russia's defense ministry
3: released footage of missiles hours after striking Lviv, a major transportation hub in western Ukraine, about 50 miles from NATO member Poland. The ministry spokesman said the strike
0: successfully targeted large weapons shipments sent by the U.S. and European countries. Ukraine's regional governor says three military facilities were hit. At least seven people were reported killed. Lviv's mayor says they were civilians. Arkiv was among other sites hit. Emergency workers tried to console a woman whose father had been killed in the shelling. Russia appears to be trying to grind down Ukraine's defences
3: in preparation for a major ground offensive in the east. Asked if she might flee Kharkiv, an angry Marina Svetskaya asks where they're hitting the whole of Ukraine. I'm Ben Thomas.
0: Matthew Best is a freelance journalist who writes for the Globe and Mail and the Ottawa Citizen. He is in Lviv. He's been seeing this stuff firsthand. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us an update. Matthew, thanks for joining us. I hope you're still well these days. It's getting pretty close to home, isn't it?
1: It's starting to get a lot closer. Um, These are the first fatalities uh, in Lviv uh, throughout the whole war. We've had people injured before with the uh, strike on the oil depot, but these are the first time that anybody has died uh, in this city, and it's hit the city pretty hard.
0: How big a city? For those who may not know the area, when we're talking Lviv, is there a Canadian comparator? How, How many people? How big a city is this, actually?
1: This is Quite a cozy city. I mean, everything here is walkable. uh In the outskirts, uh, a little farther away, it's about you know somewhere between half a million to a million people. It's hard to get an estimate here when you know so many refugees are coming over. What the actual population is now? We've heard talk that the population has nearly doubled since the start of the war because people coming through. But it's it's a nice medium sized city. uh What you might expect uh, from Know, somewhere like London or something like that, where okay, it's a little yeah. cozier and a little smaller.
0: I'm going to go out on the limb here and assume that most of our listeners uh, have never experienced uh, listening to a missile attack on a, a live and in person like this. Uh, it's, I don't want to say it's become commonplace for those who are still on the V, but I mean you've been there for quite some time. Just what what is it? What's it like when you hear and see uh, the plumes of smoke and and you feel the reverberations? I mean to, to be in a city that's literally under attack
1: the the munitions are actually quite quiet i mean it's sort of common to maybe hear one or two as they come in and not maybe all four or five that were said to come in maybe see a couple. They're precision munitions, so they're quite limited in what they hit. They do cause a lot of collateral damage, of course. We know apartments nearby, the the sites, the warehouses were hit and people did feel those. But they're rather it's rather starkly not what you would expect from something, you know, like you might see in the movies. And that actually makes it quite a bit eerier is there's no loud thunder that carries across the city like we might expect. There's no shaking and shock waves that shatter all the windows. It's just Somebody says something was hit, and all of a sudden there's black plumes of smoke on the horizon, and that is quite a bit psychologically worse. Um, it doesn't rise to our expectations of what we might think of these kinds of attacks.
0: Well, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, I've had the, the opportunity to talk to people actually that survived the the Blitz in London, of course, in in, in World War II, uh, and that was just indiscriminate bombing, carpet bombing, of course, by uh, by the the, the Nazis. Uh, and you didn't know where they were going to land and what damage they were going to do. And of course, they did feel all those reverberations. But this is this is a different technology, isn't it? I mean, they can actually target what building they want to hit with these things.
1: They can. Um, these are, you know, very sort of precise munitions. Now, what we heard from the mayor uh, when I was speaking to the mayor at uh, the press conference after these strikes was that uh, the targets were rather indiscriminate. They were warehouses. They were civilian warehouses. We, of course, heard the Russian defense ministry say that they were armed shipments. The Ukraine uh, government says different, um, but you know, they hit what they intended to hit uh, and just caused a bit of damage around uh, around the area. But These aren't, it's not indiscriminate. It's definitely terrifying because nobody knows what the Russians might consider military infrastructure. Um, And so there is that bit of psychological uh, indiscrimination, but not what you would expect from say, what we saw from as your example, the blitz.
0: So, and again, it's awfully hard to get inside the head of the Russians and what their, their tact is here. There was some, I guess, relief—if that's even the right word—from uh, some of the Ukrainian officials uh, when they seemed to pull back from Kiev a couple of weeks ago. I guess now, uh, but it seems as if what they've just simply done here is is just reinforced. Uh, well, for instance, uh, their attack on Lviv, and of course uh, the the other fighting that's going on. I mean, cities still seem to be the targets here, do they? Don't they?
1: cities are absolutely the targets. As we were speaking to the mayor and the military administrator of Lviv Oblast, they mentioned that this was genocide, and it is at a point where I would have to agree. Uh, We know Mariupol is still getting heavily shelled. Uh, They mentioned that uh, folks in Mariupol and Kharkiv um, often can't be buried according to religious rites because the cities are in absolute ruins. Um, They can't get to the casualties. They can't tend to them. They have no ground to put them in. They called it uh, a, an act of you know, psychological terror along with the genocide that they're engaging in. And these cities are absolutely their targets. We know also that last night Nikolai also received shelling very close to Odessa. They're definitely well, targeting the cities.
0: Let, let, let's talk a little bit about where you are you Lviv. You spent a lot of time there. I know you've been back and forth across the border a couple of times. Uh, what is the if we if we can speculate anyway the strategic importance of l'viv how important is it for instance to supply chains to to get supplies into to, for the the fighting but more importantly i guess to people get people out if Fafaf they want to go
1: uh, Lviv is the hub. Uh, Lviv is sort of the crucial point of that. Of course, uh, the administrators were talking about how they wanted more routes for weapons supplies open in other areas coming across, maybe from Moldova or Belarus. But with Poland being such a friendly country and so open to supporting the Ukrainians, the route from Poland to Lviv is the sort of central route. And of course, there's a major railway station here as well that's bringing people out of Kiev and out of regions in the east of Ukraine that... Heavy military infrastructure and heavy civilian infrastructure that provides relief for the Ukrainian government to move people out is of major strategic importance. Possibly, the only thing that's putting up an umbrella around Lviv are the many embassies that have moved here uh, in acts of solidarity that would, you know, potentially bring other belligerents into the war, as well as uh, simply the absolute. Uh, undeniable atrocity of attacking evacuation routes which they've already been doing in the east but it would be almost undeniable to do here
0: so i guess we're trying to connect the dots here uh of course president Zelensky has already made another impassioned plea to to the nato forces and specifically i guess to the americans uh for more equipment more heavy equipment more ammunition uh, you know, we had the story, I guess it was, was it near Mariupol uh, about a week or so ago, uh, where some Ukrainian forces uh, simply surrendered because they ran out of bullets. Uh, n- no more uh, uh, tools to, to fight anymore. Uh, the, the goal here, I guess, is for the Ukrainians not to have that happen to them again. How much pressure is that putting on NATO to, to increase their supply?
1: Well, they're definitely trying to pressure NATO. I I don't know if NATO is necessarily responding as the Ukrainian government wants because we hear the same pleas from every level of government over here day after day is send more, send more, send more. If that's working, um, it's it's hard to gauge. Um, as you mentioned, the, the force to surrender to Mariupol, of course, there were a lot of uh, foreign volunteers there as well. Some British forces were posting online that they had to give up and that's this sort of city under siege. Now, Whether the supplies can come in and actually make it all the way over to Mariupol and actually break that siege, that might be a little harder to really gauge. But I know the Ukrainian government doesn't feel that NATO is responding enough. And that's not just merely with their campaign to close the skies and implement a no-fly zone, but with getting more N-laws and javelins over here, getting more ammunition, um, they're always asking for more.
0: As they did again this weekend, of course, uh, and we're hearing that not just as you mentioned from Zelensky, but from some of the mayors of these these cities. Uh, I'll ask you, that every time we have these discussions, I ask about the resolve of the Ukrainian people in the situation. Uh, when the bombings of the cities continue like this, and, and as you mentioned, even some of the people trying to get out of there uh, have been targets of some of these attacks as well. Uh, But we're hearing from the mayors of of Mariupol, and certainly where you are in Lviv, basically saying, we're not going to surrender. That's all there is to it. We're not going anywhere. Uh, That that tells me that they have not been shaken at all by this.
1: They're definitely defiant. I mean, I know the mayor was proudly, defiantly holding his fist up and saying glory to Ukraine and that we'll never surrender and that it's a matter of democracy versus totalitarianism, that level of defiance is still there, but I will tell you that the mood on the street has changed. Um, I asked the mayor if people were falling into a false sense of security here, and he said, you know, the sun's shining, people can go out, and get coffee, and the result is now some people are dead. Um, today and yesterday, there were a lot fewer people on the streets than I'd seen before. And so while that resilience is still there, definitely from the levels of government, I've seen a certain level of shaking uh, in the last couple of days that I hadn't seen in the last month,
0: and, and that's maybe part of the Russian strategy, I guess, as, as you've talked about and written about, uh, is to just wear down the Ukrainians. Uh, even if you can't do it militarily, uh, if 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 they lose uh, the the public, of course, in that resolve, uh, it's going to make it an awful, awfully much more difficult, I guess, for people to to maintain that that sort of attitude about what's going on. Uh, but this seems to be. And and I guess in hindsight, you could probably have said this five or six different times before though, Matthew, that this is a pivotal week. Uh, You know, the intensity of the attacks on Lviv uh, and of course, Mariupol, and now there's some concern that we saw over the weekend, Uh, they they may return return to the attacks on Kyiv as well. Uh, It sounds as if this is, I don't want to use the term blitzkrieg, but I mean, that whole idea that they're just going to pound and pound away at these three major cities, hoping that that's going to change the Ukraine attitude, uh, which is really, I guess, uh, making it incumbent upon NATO forces to say, you know, uh, can we step up? Can we do anything about this?
1: Right. Well, I will tell you this, that, you know, the Russian military is an artillery military. We often think of sort of the American military of aircraft carriers and air supremacy, but that's not how the Russians work. And that's not how they've ever worked. They have the capacity to sit there just a little farther back from the front and pound with missiles and artillery shells. And that has a devastating effect on this kind of infrastructure. And it does put cities like Mariupol and Kharkiv and Kiev into sieges where that long-term idea of just causing endless damage until people break is... I mean, it's the end goal of what they're trying to do to just drive these people out.
0: But it, it seems as if the, the ground attack that they seem to have tried at Kiev and, and Mariupol certainly uh, seems to be playing a secondary role right now. That It's the artillery and, and the missiles that they're using right now to try to wear down the resistance.
1: It absolutely is. Uh, the you know, in terms of you know Russian doctrine, I don't want to go too much into it because I'm not a military scholar, but the Russian doctrine is basically you have the infantry hold the area, protect the artillery while the artillery does its horrible job, and then have the infantry move in to take um sort of the ground that's now been raised and leveled to the ground and that's you know exactly right they're just there to lock up the troops and allow the missiles from the Caspian and Black Sea and from over from Russia to do their job to allow the big guns to just pound and pound and pound and pound
0: I don't know if you saw the report but uh, there was and I caught this yesterday evening uh and again unconfirmed reports but you know the 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 stories coming out of russia as you, and you've commented on those over the last couple of weeks as well uh the misinformation campaign uh one of the uh the uh, releases uh, yesterday uh claimed that there were canadian troops in ukraine right now it, it, have you heard that and have you seen any evidence that that canadians or any other nato troops have crossed that border
1: None whatsoever, not on a coordinated effort anyways. We do know there are foreign volunteers, of course, and I'm not going to say they're not. We know, of course, the the Van Vandu sniper Wally, uh, you know, came over to volunteer that much. We do know, but they're volunteering independently as, you know, basically free citizens um, to do... Uh, you know, to, to try to help the Ukrainian people on a coordinated level of, uh, you know, any sort of NATO forces come to be present, even to just train people. No, that's absolute bunk. I've seen no CAD pad, I've seen no camouflage. I've seen no, you know, sort of any level of presence from units that are coming over here. This is absolute disinformation from the Russian government uh, where they're trying to spin a few people who have the skills and experience to come over and try to help into some, grand campaign against russia and it ties into their claims that they would engage in nuclear escalation if finland joined nato and it's it's very typical russian propaganda
0: yeah, which and, and as we've talked about in the past, I mean, you know, propaganda usually has a, a a grain of truth to it, and they simply you know try to conflate that with with something else. As you say, there are Canadians over there who are fighting, but they're they're volunteers and they're they're there independently. But no Canadian troop movement, so or, or American or, or any other NATO organization has crossed the border.
1: Absolutely not. No, not not any that I've seen
0: interestingly enough you mentioned about uh, you know some of the Scandinavian countries rethinking their neutrality in situations like this uh, it seemed as if with those peace talks were going on that uh, Ukraine has pretty much given up the idea of trying to join NATO at least for the time being anyway. Uh, but they have not given up uh, being a member of the European Union. My understanding is that uh, Zelensky has actually signed initial documents, uh, almost like an application form, I guess, for the EU. Uh, any, any reaction from, from the people there? And do they see a benefit for Ukraine, not just from an economic standpoint, but for, you know, being it w- with that group, that European group, that that might offer a little more solace to them and, and maybe a little more support as they continue this battle?
1: Oh, I think so. We know that uh, of course the Euromaidan protests from years ago were to open up uh Ukraine to joining the EU and that's been a long-term goal of the Ukrainian government. Um, what it means to join the EU at this stage, I think, is, you know, as you mentioned, sort of opening up the borders a bit, opening up the economy a bit, uh, opening up imports and exports a bit to keep that sort of uh, back and forth going and basically feeling that all, you know, there's some level of uh, collective security and collective defense that maybe doesn't rise to the level of NATO, but knowing that they can get a larger amount of support from you know, continental Europe
0: and, and I suppose anything at this point is good uh, is going to be welcomed in situations like this. Uh, do you get the sense that the, the people where you are in Lviv right now have, have understood that there is a grave danger? And it, there always has been ever since the Russians crossed the border. We know that. But we got the sense that, that Lviv seemed to be as safe as you could be in, in Ukraine these days. I know a lot of the people that left some of the other cities actually went to where you are right now uh they've got to be questioning whether that's even a safe place at this stage i would think
1: well that was something the mayor emphasized um after the strike was that you know there are no safe cities we heard this after the strike on the oil depot but there were no fatalities with that and it didn't the gravity of it didn't really sink in uh but it was a major point of emphasis that now there are uh, absolutely no safe cities in ukraine If you hear an air raid siren, get to the shelter, the mood on the street has completely changed. It's starting to hit home that this is not a place that's sitting on the border with Poland, their friendly next-door neighbor, and is untouchable. Um, It's definitely starting to reach the people in Lviv here.
0: Uh, We should mention that uh, as for that plea that uh, uh, Zelensky made over the weekend, uh, the U.S. uh, has now announced that four U.S. cargo flights uh, have arrived Uh, over there right now uh, with arms and materials uh, for the Ukrainian fighters over there too so they're listening but clearly the the message from Zelensky over the weekend seemed to be to NATO and specifically to the United States and, and frankly to Canada too because I know he's made pleas to the Prime Minister since he's addressed the Parliament here is this is thank you for this but it's not near enough as to what we need right now.
1: That's uh that's the ongoing theme, uh, with the, the request to NATO and the request to uh Canada, the United States. Um it's it's they're they're getting crumbs from the table is the the sense that again, all levels of government, not just Zelensky, but down to the mayors and down to the people on the street is that It's table scraps uh, when they need a full meal in their bellies. And, uh, you know, it's like I said before, it's not necessarily a matter of just closing the sky. It's a matter of making sure that, uh, you know, all the volunteers are calling up, all the conscripts that they're raising up are armed, uh, are armored, uh, have transportation have uh the ability to protect the buildings and they're just not getting enough they're doing what they can with what they have Uh, you work with what you got but the sense here is that you know it's it's just give more
0: It's uh, it's a troubling situation, and as we say, uh, this seems to be a pivotal week uh, for both sides, both the Russian uh, aggression and, of course, uh, whether or not uh, the NATO folks are going to come to the aid of, uh, as Ukraine, as President Zelensky has said. Uh, Matthew Best, uh, stay safe, please, and uh, we hopefully we'll talk again as developments occur uh, later on this week, but thank you so much for the time today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Bill.
0: Take care. Matthew Best, freelance journalist who writes for the Globe and Mail and the Ottawa Citizen. He joins us from Lviv today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on
3: 900 CHML.
0: Lots of Washington news uh, over the last two or three days, of course. Uh, Another plea from President Zelensky from Ukraine for more U.S. help. Uh, President Biden uh, doubling down on uh, his Buy America policy uh and uh, well somewhat of a surprising story this morning about the mask mandate on air travel uh that's been impacted significantly joining us to talk about all this is a reggie chikini reggie of course is the washington correspondent for global news in uh, the u.s capitol uh reggie uh, thanks so much for the time and a busy day glad you could join us for a few minutes good morning Let's first of all talk about the mask mandate Uh, it's it's been a very contentious issue Uh, the Biden administration was very adamant about maintaining uh, masking policies and mandates in situations like this shot down in the courts today was that a surprise.
3: Uh, shot down in the courts today, uh, yes, it, it was a surprise. Uh, it caught the airlines uh, off guard. It caught airline passengers off guard. The White House last night uh, saying that it was disappointing, and public health experts uh, are saying that this could potentially become a dangerous move, given the fact that the uh, Omicron BA2 subvariant is uh, increasing at a pretty rapid clip across the Northeast, and is expected to do so uh, across the country in the coming days. Uh, I think what's more important to point out here, though, is uh, this decision came down from a Republican, from a Trump-appointed judge in Florida, who says that the CDC is overreaching uh, and doesn't have the authority to implement this kind of public health mandate, which public health experts are saying now undermines the, the, the ability for the CDC to be able to do its job.
0: Uh, I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds on, on, on the legalities of this, but uh, as you mentioned, this was a, a judge in Florida. Uh, Can this be appealed? Is there an an attempt? Is the Biden administration making noises like they would appeal this ruling?
3: Well, I mean, the Biden administration, uh, you know, they haven't said whether or not they're going to appeal. The Department of Justice hasn't said whether or not they're going to appeal. And it could be for the simple reason that if they do so and they lose, what happens if COVID happens to become problematic down the road? Does that get in the way or interfere with the government's ability to re-implement or reinstate another federal mask mandate? Uh, So they are kind of, you know, holding back. This was to expire in a couple of weeks anyways. So, you know, we kind of have to wait to see where the White House was going. Uh, And again, not to get too into the weeds on the politics of this, but again, we're at a point in this country, Bill, where politics and the pandemic are running into each other. uh, And it's worth pointing out, again, it was a Republican, judge who did this, it's being lauded by Republicans. At the same time, Republicans are calling out the CDC for ending what's called Title 42, which is a public health mandate that stops immigration uh, and immigrants from crossing the southern border, citing the pandemic is a reason for that to happen. So you have Republicans saying, look, the CDC doesn't have the authority, but if it benefits us politically, then the CDC does have the authority.
0: With that in mind, the politics in mind, you've been talking to us over the last couple of weeks, Reggie, about uh, the woeful uh, polling numbers that the Biden administration uh, is experiencing these days. Uh, is is it politically astute for them to just leave this alone without trying to you know, poke
3: the bear anymore? Yeah, I mean, look, considering 52% of the country right now disapproves uh, of Joe Biden, at least when it comes to the overall popularity numbers, only 42% approve, he's really struggled to kind of get out of these low 40s uh for the last several months uh, and i think considering we have seen this country really ripped apart by the politics surrounding this pandemic the the administration may say look we're we're in a position right now where we can kind of get a hold on things but ultimately given the fact that the white house had put this extension forward just a couple of days ago because this mask mandate was supposed to expire uh yesterday it was extended for a few weeks so they could see how this subvariant goes Uh, You know, the White House is disappointed, but trying to not fight it could be a political move, given the fact that there is so much on the line just a couple of months down the road.
0: Reggie, is there still concern about uh, the spread of the virus uh, down in the states? I mean, you mentioned this ruling came out of Florida. Well, Governor DeSantis has has hardly been a supporter of of any kind of restrictions, of course. Uh, One of the first uh, states to to drop any kind of mandate uh, and uh, still seems uh, adamant about that sort of thing, too. But on a national basis, as you mentioned, the numbers are still
3: going up. Is that of great concern to to the administration? Look, it's 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 of concern to the administration. It's also of concern to um, to to the medical community around the United States, who are already seeing an increase in some hospitalizations. Uh, but on a you know a much larger scale, to look at it from coast to coast, there are still 500 plus people dying every single day because of COVID-19, and there are still 30,000 plus reported cases, uh, a number that's likely far higher because of the prevalence of at home testing. So this is a crisis that is still impacting this country. They are better able to deal with it and handle it. But because of the kind of varying nature of the subvariants variants that, that continue to pop up, um, the Mayo Clinic shows that you know, it's, it's popping through the Northeast right now. And two weeks down the road, the Midwest and the West are going to be in a similar position.
0: Is there concern that this may extend to to other restrictions that have been put in place not just the masking mandate but a number of other things that uh, the the CDC as you mentioned and the Biden administration have been purporting to to try to stem the tide of the uh, the infection?
3: Well, so, you know, just because they're getting rid of the mask mandate, it doesn't mean that everything is going, um, you know, the way of the dodo. Uh, I reached out to a to an official inside the White House yesterday uh, and last week, and on both occasions, I made the request of, hey, you know, mask mandates may be going away. What about testing requirements for people that are flying into the United States, whether it's from Canada or abroad? And just last night, a White House official told me, no, the testing requirement is going to stay. It's not in place if you drive across. It is still in place if you fly across, and that's something that is kind of mandated and dealt with by the airlines. So the U.S. is still trying to do what it can to limit the spread. They're pulling some of the you know cloth away to, to let some of the mandates go, but ultimately they are still keeping some of them in place, and that is still a, a point of frustration for uh, Americans and, and for Canadians alike.
0: Yeah, I saw a, a map, I guess, that uh, one of the networks put up just after this was announced uh, about the states that still have a, a alarmingly high percentage of, of the, uh, the the virus, and it's it's significant. It's almost half the country, so they're not out of the woods yet, are they?
3: No, absolutely uh, they're not, and this is something that is obviously going to reverberate down the road, and there's going to be you know health experts not only uh, in Canada and the U.S., but really around the world now looking to see whether or not decisions need to be made, uh, you know, in their purview. This is, this is the United States, uh, making a, a decision here that ultimately will have a global impact. Let's uh, switch
0: gears if we could, uh, and to go to the Ukraine. President Zelensky, of course, is making another statement, another plea uh, to the United States, particularly, but na- to a larger degree, to NATO uh, for more arms, uh, for more, uh, for heavier arms. Uh, he's looking for uh, anti-tank, anti-artillery, anti-everything, uh, and just say, "Look at you guys! It w- it's great what you've given, but it's nowhere near enough." Uh, and that's under the uh, the umbrella of uh, the story—a rumor, anyway. Reggie, uh, that uh, President Biden may actually visit Ukraine. What, what what have you heard about that?
3: So look, the president himself has said that he is ready to go. Uh, we had President Zelensky over the last couple of days uh, insisting that President Biden is going to uh, to come and visit Kiev. Uh, and, and you have kind of the counterflow on that, which is the White House saying that President Biden is not going to be traveling to the White House while the administration tries to work together some plan to get a senior administration official on the ground uh, in Ukraine. So Are we going to see President Biden travel? It's possible, but is it likely? Also, possibly not. Uh, you know, this, this is a president who has really kind of put his foot before uh, his mouth sometimes and puts his mouth before his foot other times, uh, and he says he wants to go, but the White House is really saying, look, the security situation in Ukraine uh, is too volatile. Uh, we can't risk putting the president on the ground in the country, despite the fact that we saw Prime Minister Johnson there. We have seen uh, the Baltic leaders there. Uh, we have seen leaders of NATO show up uh, as well. But the White House is saying, let's hold off. Let's try to determine a different plan.
0: They'd have to change uh, strategies, though, if they were going to do this, wouldn't they, Reggie? I mean, you mentioned Boris Johnson was there just the other day. Uh, that was an unannounced trip. He just showed up there. Uh, And and I suppose from security standpoints, if the United States were to do something, like this, if Biden himself uh, were to be involved in in one of these trips, uh, I got to figure that they're going to be very, very coy about about any sort of an agenda or uh, when they're going to be there and where they're going to be if they do show up.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, this would kind of be likened to uh, when the president, uh, when any president opts to go overseas like we saw uh, during the Trump administration or during the Obama or Bush administrations where the presidents would travel to uh, to kind of a hot zone uh, in the Middle East like Afghanistan. It's not announced beforehand. It is not even announced while they're on the ground. And then the pool will start to send notes out as they start to head home to let the country know that the president was there because it becomes a security risk for the safety not only uh, of the people surrounding the president but of the president himself uh... and this was something that happened during the trump administration where he publicly acknowledged that he was on the ground well he was on the ground uh... and it really sent a kind of a security stir through uh... the trump administration at the point uh... so if president biden were to go we likely wouldn't know about it and even the white house yesterday said it would be an announcement not made from the podium
0: uh, interesting to see and follow the, the developments there over the next little while. Uh, trips overseas, as as you've been reporting, traditionally uh, seem to give the the president of the day a bit of a popularity boost. Uh, whether it's uh, you know George W. Or of course uh, Obama making a couple of stops as you mentioned some of the hotspots around the world. Uh, I know some people simply dismiss it as a photo op, and and there's probably an element of that, of course. Uh, But the fact that that the president is there with the troops, uh, or in this particular case, on the other side of the border from the troops, uh, may play pretty well at home, I would think.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it's very possible uh, that it would. There is still a lot of support, maybe not for the president, but for the, how the administration uh, is handling the situation uh, in Ukraine. Uh, but but again, given the fact that the White House has been, you know, really hesitant to even announce, not only if it's not going to be President Biden, if it's going to be somebody higher up in the administration, whether it's the vice president or whether it's the secretary of state uh, or just some form of, of, of made-up delegation, uh, you know, there is support for, for seeing some kind of interaction over there uh, but we did see the president and the vice president travel to Poland uh, several weeks ago to meet with the troops that are over there. Uh, so, you know, there is an opportunity here uh, for Americans to see the leader on a, a foreign stage, especially when there is a conflict. But given the fact that that, you know, these attacks that we're seeing throughout Ukraine are moving westward, it's concentrated in the east, but we're seeing attacks in uh, Kiev and we're also seeing attacks in Lviv right now. Um, it really is unclear how the U.S. C- can go forward and keep this safe.
0: With uh, Reggie Cicchini, Global News in Washington, a uh, new issue, uh, guidance uh, uh, issued uh, yesterday about uh, the trade agreement and the Buy America policy, Reggie, uh, and getting pretty prescriptive about this, too, saying whether it's for a bridge, a highway, water pipe, or a broadcast internet, uh, U.S. have to use stuff that's made in the U.S., uh, but and, and that's the headline, and, and I know that's, that's going to be troubling to Canadian steel industry and so many other aspects of, of the, the cross-border trade, but they did give some wiggle room here that there could be some uh, situations where they might waive that requirement.
3: Yeah. And look, uh, from from some of the reporting out there, this was a decision that could potentially have been made to go after China uh, and to try and and keep the influence of, of cheaper steel uh, from coming out of China into the United States uh, and to ensure that this kind of buy American policy, which uh, is kind of criticized from, from some Democrats as being too much of a, a quote unquote Trumpian policy, you know, the president here is simply trying to say, look, uh, you know, we need to keep America moving forward, but there are some economists who say, look, the more we rely solely on steel made in America, the more expensive things are going to get, and this puts, uh, you know, uh, kind of pressure on these, these equal trade agreements that go back and forth between Canada and Mexico. Will Canada be able to kind of carve itself into a niche to be able to supply steel for U.S. government contracts? Uh, that is still uh, a possibility here. Obviously, um, you know, the, the trade relationship between the two countries is still vital uh, and important, even if it has been kind of tested in the last little bit, especially with that border blockade where you had some Democrats say, look, we need to rely more on American-made products because, uh, you know, any kind of geopolitical conflict can potentially get in the way of that. Uh, this, is, it, this is the Biden administration trying to, to sell his infrastructure plan to, uh, to a country that has really been hesitant, you know, for, for any, uh, any of the, the, the agenda or policy items that the president has really been putting forward.
0: Well, and you're right. This is a very complicated issue. I mean, you know, there was some leeway, I guess, when it came to the auto industry, even under the Trump administration, to say, well, you know, they're made in both countries, so okay, they they get a pass. And that was was good for the Canadian auto industry. But steel's a different issue. Uh, As you said, I, I don't know that the opposition down in the States, Reggie, is so much against Canadian steel, but the concern that many of the Republicans have made there is that, yeah, but China's dumping steel into Canada, which is making its way across the border, and, and you're, you're right, it, it still seems to be aimed at China, but we might be an unintended consequence of that.
3: Yeah, it's it's possible here, uh, and this all you know. It, it all comes down to to uh, the sanctions that are in place uh, in China right now, and whether or not those sanctions need to be loosened to try and get some of that steel into America to try and create more competition. This is where uh, the economists are saying, look, we understand what the administration is trying to do here, but ultimately Americans are going to suffer the consequences of more expensive materials if they solely rely. On self uh, made materials, but at the same time, you have uh, lawmakers who are saying, look, we can't continue to prop up uh, an economy like China by allowing them to enter our market or to allow themselves to enter our market by accident via another market whether that's Canada uh, or Mexico. Uh, But ultimately with the president really trying to push this trillion dollar infrastructure package around the country, which does have bipartisan support. It means that work needs to be done. It means that bridges and roads uh, and infrastructure and and heavy structures need to be built. They're going to need steel uh, and you know, the administration is going to have to figure out the best way to procure the element which which is going to come at a cost
0: i, I got about a minute left but i got to get your comment uh, about joe manchin who was up in alberta uh, last week uh, uh, with, uh, with uh with of course premier jason kenney uh, ostensibly it was about the oil industry and trying to get things ramped up there uh but manchin's still a player when it comes to for instance the buy america policy and he's been a, a thorn in the side of the Biden administration
3: is he still a player in all of this Look, he's still a huge player, and he still can draw in, um, you know, a, a lot of money. This, this, is, this is a senator who just uh, took part uh, in, a, in a kind of a, a fundraiser put on by a GOP megadonor. It was a $5,000-a-plate fundraiser. So there is an opportunity here for, uh, for Joe Manchin to, you know, be not only a thorn in the side to the Democratic Party, but also uh, to the Republican Party as well. He has come around a little bit more to uh, some of the administration's policies and agenda uh, when it comes to spending, even though he's kind of red a lot of the the, the agenda of policies and the costs associated with them, but ultimately, given the fact that he can be a make-or-break person within the Democratic Party, um, you know, he's he's being revered as somebody who has helped out the administration to now, when he's been able to, and at other times, has required a little more coaxing.
0: Well, it's going to be interesting to see his reaction to the policy announcement from yesterday as well. Uh, Reggie Giacchini in Washington will be watching for your reports on Global National, of course, every evening, and uh, stay well, Reggie. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Take care.